Yo, yo, this is Oz, host and founder of Salinas in the Ground podcast. And this is Claudia Melendez Salinas, co-founder of Voices of Monterey Bay. So Salinas in the Ground podcast, we've been around for six years, and I swore since the beginning that we would never do anything political. But this year, this election season is a little bit different. And I thought to myself, now is the time that we have to do something. So like, I called around to see who I can get to, to help back me up on this. And Claudia luckily answered my call. Voices of Monterey Bay has been around for nearly three years. And we were created with the idea of amplifying important voices around the community. So then Osvaldo asked, hey, you want to come along so we can do some political reporting? And I thought, why not? So this is an experiment. And... Uh, so the next following weeks, we'll be interviewing as many candidates for Salinas City office as possible. The elections are coming up quickly on November 3rd, so we have to we have to hurry it up. Oz and I work full time, so we will only have time to interview one or two candidates a week, which means we won't have time to cover school boards or other races. But we're committed to getting to all the candidates for Salinas City Council, and maybe we'll try to squeeze in a... Uh, uh, ballot proposition or two? What say you, Oz? Hey, we'll we'll try our best. We ju- we just got the we just got the voter guide, so we'll see we'll see what we can fit before the before the third. And now, without further ado, this week's candidate. Yo yo yo! We're back with our election series. We are now what did we say? Thirty seven days away from election day, and and one week from um, the date that the new ballots the ballots drop. Oh. Well, we're a week away. Yeah. And are they all get? Does that mean they're getting delivered that day, or they're getting mailed out? They're getting mailed out, right? Yeah. So everybody who's a registered voter this year gets an elect uh, ballot mailed to their home. So all those ballots will hit the hit the mail and start arriving in about a week. I'm permanent absentee, so I feel so dumb because uh-huh. I'm just I don't know. It just shows up. <laughs> it shows up. I fill it out. I drop it off. I don't. Okay. Yeah. So. It's interesting. I've never voted in person. I've always voted via a mail-in ballot. And yet I was talking to some of my older friends and they were saying the exact opposite, that they've never voted by mail. They've always voted in person. So I'm wondering if there's sort of some generational differences there. I feel <laughs> I feel kind of dumb because I would I would like to. I mean, I guess this year is a little bit different, but I've, I've also never done it in person. And I'm like, I kind of want to, but I'm like... I don't know how to do it. Like, I'm sure somebody, <laughs> is it the same well, you ballot can. or like, I, I, yeah. I would feel so dumb sticking my head out of that little curtain and being like, uh, can I have, <laughs> I have a question over here. Before we keep going any further, we should introduce our guest today. Yeah. We're here with Wendy Root Askew, who's running for the seat being held by her current boss, um, Supervisor Jane Parker, who represents District 4 in the Monterey County Board of Supervisors. Which encompasses where? Yeah, it's a great question. So the districts, right? So there are five districts in the county of Monterey, and each supervisor represents a district that um, includes about the same population of people. So District 4 includes Seaside, Marina, South Salinas, uh, East Garrison, Delray Oaks, Sand City, and most of the um, CSUMB Fort Ord, former Fort Ord Uh property. And tell us a little bit about you and why did you decide to run? Oh my goodness! Why? Why did I decide and to do it run in and five seconds who, or less? Who am I? 
Um, so like the, you know, quick, quick answers are, you know, I'm a fourth generation Monterey County resident. My great grandparents um, settled here and the military kept my family coming back to the area. My dad was born at Fort Ord and um, I, uh, we traveled around uh, military quite a bit, but when he retired, we came home to uh, Monterey County. I am currently living in Marina where uh, with my husband, uh, where we were raising our son, um, who's in third grade doing distance learning, which let me tell you is less than awesome. Um, <laughs> I uh, went to Cal Poly, graduated from Cal Poly, uh, worked in um, fundraising, uh, did some of the first redevelopment work out at Fort Ord with the um, new Chartwell School that was built as the first lead platinum uh, elementary school in the country. Really exciting. And then I started a small food brokerage company and built that up to where we were doing $5 million in annual sales. Um, sold that company so that I could go to work uh, with the county and uh, become a public servant working with Supervisor Jane Parker. That's where I've been for about the last 10 years. And I uh, love my community, have deep, deep, we joke, uh, my, my maiden name is Root, and I joke that so we have deep roots in the community. My roots run deep. Um, but my mom taught here uh, as a parent educator for 20 years after my dad was out of the military. And I just, I love, I love this place. I love that we have such incredible natural resources with the beaches and our um, agricultural land and uh, the Fort Ord National Monument. Um, I love the deep sense of community that you have, uh, that, that, that we have, that, that I feel when I'm here, people really love their community. They love the place that they live. And um, there's just so many ways to be a part of and to give back. And um, so I'm running for the Monterey County Board of Supervisors. And so, well, you mentioned 10 years ago, you said, right, you started working for Jane Parker. And when you started working there 10 years ago, was your plan, eventually I'm going to replace her and do what she's doing? So running for office was never something I would have ever in my wildest dreams imagined that I would be doing. Um you know, life presents opportunities and uh, the opportunity to start my own food brokerage was something that sort of presented itself and I ran with it and it ended up being phenomenal and great. Um, the opportunity to work with Jane was something, you know, when she asked me to, when she won her election and asked me to join her team and I said, no, um, you know, I don't know, I don't know about you and your politics and I don't know about my own politics uh, and I don't know about politics in general. Like it, sometimes it seems kind of mean and dirty and not pleasant. Um, but the more that I began to realize how every single thing in my life is political in nature, the, the sidewalk that I walk on with a stroller with my son when he was little, like that's a political decision that was made in my city. Um, the, the, the trees that are, exist, like those are political decisions about zoning, um, Fort Ord National Monument, what I love to hike in, like those are all political decisions. Um, when I was working for myself as a food broker, I found that I wasn't able to get health insurance in the individual market. I couldn't get maternity coverage. And I thought, well, that's crazy. It turns out that's a political, that like the yeah. state was making those political decisions. And so it was kind of, in the past 10 years working with Jane and the county of Monterey and seeing how significant the county's um, roles and responsibilities are in the way that they impact the lives of, you know, seniors on fixed income, the way that the county services impact the lives of families, of workers, of businesses, it's become the kind of thing where I couldn't not do it. Um, 
So you you're doing this. You're learning all about the politics. Are you running? If you believe, because you still think there are a lot of things that need to be fixed, or do you think that things are going in the right direction and you just need to continue guiding them that way? Yeah. So when you look at county government, right? So we're going to go into like a little bit of civics education. So when you talk about county government, two thirds of our budget is state and federal dollars that are mandated with specific things that we're doing or not doing. So the state or federal government say, County, you will take this money and you will do X with it. And the County Board of Supervisors are the fiduciary responsible party to ensure that those dollars are spent in the way that they were mandated to be spent with the highest efficiency and positive outcomes that we can achieve with those dollars on a local level. Um, And then a third of that budget, of our $1.5 billion budget, is we we call it discretionary dollars. But a significant portion of those discretionary dollars we have to use to match the state and federal um, money that's coming to us. So the state, the, the federal government will say for women, infants, and children program, we're going to give you $4 for every $1 that you put into this program. And that's the program that provides nutrition and health care, health benefits um, services to moms with new babies. Make sure that they have nutritious food to eat when they're pregnant. Make sure that their babies have formula to eat. Um, that they have uh, lactation support if they need it. So at the county level, what we're really doing is we're a steward of local local tax dollars to ensure that we're leveraging them to have the greatest impact for these state and federal dollars. So in the question of are we on the right track, are we not on the right track, so much of what the county's responsibility is is to make these sort of fine-tuning decisions about how do we take the local money that we receive from our tax our taxpayers here locally and ensure that we're getting as much state and federal benefit for our local residents as we possibly can. Um, so having said that, right, which is sort of a nuance in how the county's um, 26 different departments work, there's also a lot of land use decisions that the county has responsibility for. Um, there's also a lot of coordinating decisions that the county works in partnership with our 20, um, with our 24 school districts and our thir- 12 uh, cities. So we have city councils who have autonomy over their own budgets and decision making. Um, in District 4, for instance, we, um, we have five city governments that we work in partnership with. And so there's this element of how do you bring all of those folks together to say, what is it that we collectively want to achieve? to benefit our community? And then how do we move in that collective path forward? Um, Sometimes the supervisors uh, sit in in a space where you get to stop bad things from happening. So it's about saying, um, you know, there's a the, the city of Salinas wants to annex uh, portions of prime ag land in South Salinas and the county supervisors get to say, no, we're not we're not going to sprawl development out into prime ag land. Um, so we're there to stop bad things from happening. Um, but so many more times we're there to say, how can we how can we take these limited resources that we have and make sure that we're we're benefiting our community in the most significant way possible? I mean, just sorry to cut you off, but just to Monterey County is the size of Delaware. <laughs> just just so, to give people a little perspective of the enormity of what these five you know supervisors have to put together on size, like a, again by geographic size, it's mm-hmm. about the size of the state of Delaware. <laughs> so, anyway. 
Well, and, you know, so do you, how do you feel that the county has done in terms of handling the pandemic in the, in a state, in a place of, that is the size of Delaware? And, you know, I've been asked that question a couple of times and I have such, um, complicated responses to it. Like it's been an incredibly complex response that includes absolutely every element of, um, county city school responsibility and, And from the county as a subdivision of the state, really in so many ways, we are at the mercy of decisions that are being made at the federal level or the state level about how we can proceed locally. Um, And that's hard. Like, that's really hard. And it's really hard when communication from the state sometimes appears via a tweet from, you know, the governor's office. And we start getting calls from constituents saying, well, I saw this tweet. And we're saying, well, we just saw the tweet, too. So let's figure out, like, what actually is happening and how do we find ways to communicate that and then make it relevant locally. And then if we need to say, hey, we need to do some advocacy back to the state to say, hey, you know what, this, what, you've, what you've proposed just doesn't work here for the following reasons. And we need to ask you to make some changes. Um, You know, I I will say that um, this has been an incredibly difficult time for so many District 4 residents. Uh, In in Seaside and Marina, we have huge numbers of our population who are um, working in hospitality. And Unite HERE, which is one of the largest hospitality um, uh, unions, 98% of their employees are um, laid off at this point. So the the unemployment rates have just skyrocketed. And with the public assistance that's available um, for so many of our individuals who uh, don't have documentation, they're not eligible for um, the food assistance that's coming out to kids. They're not eligible for um, the unemployment benefits. Like they really are on their own. And so when you look, when you drive through Marina or Seaside or Salinas every week, we still have lines of 500 cars waiting for food bank bags on a daily basis, depending on where in town you are for that distribution site. Um, So I just want to acknowledge that like these are massively challenging times across the board for for everyone. And then you add on top of that having kids at home, you add on top of that um, the, the mental health and substance abuse issues that so many people are struggling with right now. Um, the, the county's ability to solve all of these problems is limited. And in so many ways, it's community and grassroots support from neighbors and family that has stepped in to provide that wraparound care and meet the, the needs of community that present themselves locally. The county staff who've been responsive to the pandemic um, and the health department, for instance, have been phenomenal in the ways that they've stepped up. And yet it's really hard to step into roles when we don't have, um, you know, systems in place that allow for strong coordination of communication between the state and county and cities. If we're if we haven't done that work in advance and that's the work of our emergency um, uh, operations team and they're always in a planning mode. They had a pandemic plan that they were able to pull out. And unfortunately, so many because this situation has been so different and unexpected. The pandemic plan that we had was not cookie cutter, right? We didn't ever expect that we would be sending 3,000 employees home to work remotely and that our IT department would have to, on a dime, have remote access for all 3,000 employees. Like, incredible to me that we were able to pull that off. Um, 
incredible to me that we were able to take our public health lab that was actually on the cutting block for funding a couple of years ago that we saved and turn our health lab around to where they're now processing, you know, 24 seven um, COVID results at numbers much higher than we ever anticipated we would need to be operating out of that lab. So the individual people who are working in the county, I think, are doing phenomenal heroic work. Um, but when you take a step back and say, what could we have done better in terms of coordinating and um, having systems in place that allow us to gear up rapidly to meet the incredible complex needs of the community? Yeah, we we can always do better there. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're, we're already having those conversations about, you know, what worked, what didn't work, what needs to be improved. That's been a, the, the willingness of the county to engage in that sort of ongoing continuous improvement has been has been great. Mm, but there's a lot of room for improvement. We've got, we've got, I mean, the needs in our County were tremendous before COVID hit the, the disparities in our County were tremendous before COVID hit. Um, Before COVID hit, you had a quarter of our moms receiving late or no prenatal care before COVID you had one in 10 students in Monterey County who was McKinney Vento homeless before COVID hit, right? You have all, we have major housing crisis. This was all before a massive crisis. And now we're dealing with the crisis and we're going to have to have a a path to be able to come out of this. Right. And I think that that's one being one of the hardest things to, to be a witness of during the pandemic, to, to see how these huge lens has been magnifying sort of like a fire right and you had a little smoke here and there but then you have this huge magnifying glass and every single one of these areas that you are mentioning and is really creating bigger fires than before so um do you have another question lined up or but is I it my say, turn i want to can i just elaborate one more piece right so sure. i want to also say that leadership matters and We've spent a lot of time talking about the things that didn't work well and the things that um, that need to be improved. And I just want to point out that at MPUSD, where I have the honor of serving on the Board of Education, we we acted quickly. We invested over a million dollars of general fund. We purchased devices. We had teams out all summer long in students' homes working to get internet um, set up so that coming into the school year, we have every family with a device. We have a, a, um, a helpline for anyone who's having trouble logging on. We have a community cares program where we've got programs on site for kids who really need it. Um, so, so having strong leadership that's preparing in advance for crisis and responding in a fast, coordinated, effective way with the resources allocated that they need, it makes a difference. And the difference is that students are fed. The difference is, is that we've uh, re, uh, you know, got vouchers where we're putting families up into hotel rooms so that they're not on the street. The difference is that every kid has access to technology. The difference is that every kid has, um, has internet access. Um, and yeah, there's always something to improve, but the, the, the value and the importance of having strong leadership in place before a crisis happens. I just, I think that that's a really critical piece that we have to be aware of and and thoughtful um, as we build leadership teams in government and in private business um, and in education. Go ahead. Yeah, take the next one. I took the first couple. No, 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 just go ahead. Well, I was, again, along those lines of we're talking about COVID and how it's affected things, and also the hospitality industry, how it's been affected. 
we still haven't seen the full effects. We're not going to really see that until next year, until people start realizing how bad the tax base was actually hit. Um, so what what can the, the county do at that point to then help, you know, the businesses or the people or even itself at that point? Yeah. And so that when we think about it in two different ways, again, so we're thinking about our federal resources that we receive into the county. We're thinking about our state resources that we receive to fund county services. And we're thinking about our local tax base. Um, And we have to keep all three of those in mind. So the the federal resources, we're expecting a hit to those, right? If there's less resources federally, you you see you see cuts coming. The state resources is, I think, probably what I'm most um, concerned about. Um, when the state budget takes a hit, which we are anticipating um, a prolonged recession um, from this, that the state revenues will be decreased, which will fundamentally decrease many of our healthcare and social service uh, resources available to us. That puts pressure then on the counties. Um, uh, uh, um, the county's uh, discretionary funding, which is what we receive from t- uh, TOT funds. It's what we receive from property taxes. Um, and we are expecting that to take a hit too. Although I, I believe that there's a feeling that TOT and some of the hospitality is going to bounce back maybe faster than what the statewide economic hit will be. So then the question will be, how do we take that limited resources that we have in our discretionary funds and use that either to decide to backfill or to bridge out some of the losses that we're expecting from the state? The county's hit was less severe than what we expected it would be initially. So we uh, did the budget for this current year, the 20, what is that, what are we in, 2021, um, as a status quo budget without layoffs, without taking massive um, reductions to our services. We received the CARES Act funding, we were able to backfill quite a bit of the expenses that um, the county had put out specific to COVID um, expenses. And we're now getting ready in November and December to do a revised county budget based on the actuals in reduction of revenue that we've seen either from the state or the local dollars. And it's not as severe as what we were anticipating. So I think we're talking about a long-term, we're talking about a long-term recovery and we're talking about a need to be very fiscally thoughtful about where we invest those limited dollars so that we're supporting people, we're supporting our workforce um, and we're supporting the businesses locally who are going to help preserve and rebuild that discretionary revenue that we have. Um, One interesting thing, though, that it is really surprising appears to be that there has not been a big big hit to locally to the income sources because uh, tourism, you you mentioned a TOT, transient transient occupancy tax, uh, is based on tourism and tourism already took a huge hit because of the pandemic. Uh, it's something that is definitely going to need some rebuilding to um, in the years to come. Um, I'm wondering about what thoughts you have on that. Is that, um, how is that playing? How would that be playing in something that you could, you talked about the role of a supervisor being somebody who brings everybody together. So what can be thought, what, what is the plan? What could happen there? Yeah, well, I mean, luckily we live in a beautiful, beautiful place, right? Um, 
Uh, luckily, we have some of the most um, incredible hospitality destinations right here in Monterey County. So um, as far as being a desirable place for people to come visit, we are, we have been, we always will be that incredibly desirable place for people to come visit. Um, the, the, there are some projections being made about sort of when and how people will begin to travel again. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm not looking for any airplane vacations in my you know, near to soon to be, uh, I'm not planning any of those, future, yes. but I am planning and I would love to have a chance to get away with my family. And it's probably going to be, um, via a car trip. Right. And so as we think about what are the destinations that people can visit Monterey County from their vehicle, from their car, what is the circle, the travel circle around our state where people who maybe have been in a higher dense density environment, living environment are looking for a chance to get away breathe some fresh air, visit a beach. Um, and the challenge for Monterey County and how we do that is how do we ensure that visitors who continue, we're going to have, this pandemic is not gone. This pandemic is not going away tomorrow. So the challenge for Monterey County um, is how do we continue to support and welcome visitors safely into our community to generate revenue while protecting our workforce, who um, many of whom don't have sick days, um, many of whom uh, have limited access to healthcare. So, so as we invite people into the community, we need to do it in such a way that we're not putting our own residents at risk. And that's the conversation that's playing out. And it's playing out here locally, but it's also playing out in between the county and the state because the state has restrictions that we don't get to control what those restrictions are. Um, so, so, so those conversations are happening. Mm -hmm. And that's where the county gets to come into play, I think. Mm, okay, that's good. We should give you a break so you can take drink some water because yeah, we're just well, like, keep talking. This is good. I, I mean, it's really important information. And the conversation, I think, is... Um, you know, it's heated and somehow it's become political. Um, but the health and safety of our community, when we say as elected officials that, that public health and public safety matter, like we really have to say we, we have our actions have to have to uphold those values. Um, and in the communities where we have our workforce that has continued to work, um, if you look at the, the rates of COVID on the peninsula, they are lower than um, in the valley. However, the rates of COVID in Seaside and Marina are much higher. And it's not that that the people in Seaside and Marina are um, you know, much higher. Those are folks who are working in Monterey and Pebble Beach and Carmel. And so just because the residents, because your COVID numbers are based on where your, your home address is, it's not based on where you caught it. It's not based on where you work. Um, and so if we're taking our residents and putting them at risk and then sending them home to overcrowded living conditions, like that affects everybody. And that's where I think we have to have some really hard conversations about what does health and safety look like. Are those conversations taking place, you think? Because it seems to me sometimes that what's happening is like there's people to, who are just angry, like the people who just lost their business and just feel like, this is uh, overreach, government overreach, right? As, as if the pandemic was something that people chose to bring upon ourselves. And that's just me, my own, my own things. But um, what, are, what are the conversations that are taking place? Yeah, I mean, I think we need more conversations to take place. Um, the Monterey Chamber of Commerce is having regular meetings and bringing different folks in. 
Um, you know, there are, there are conversations, um, you know, among some of the executives and leadership and school districts, but, you know, let me just, if, if I'm a business owner and my, you know, like I have good friends, they just opened, um, a bar and it's, you know, they bought it, they're running it. Like they're working really freaking hard. And then suddenly their loan payments are still due but they can't open their business. Oh, and then they can't open their business. Oh, and then they have to close their business. Oh, but then do they bring staff back? Oh, but they don't bring staff back. Oh, but they brought them back and now they have to send them home again. Like it is the anxiety of this experience for them of not knowing what's going to happen, how long they can hold on, um, feeling the stress of what this experience has been for their staff and the people who they feel responsible for. Like, it is overwhelming and terrifying. They have young children. Like, how do you plan in this scenario? How do you how do you plan your own? You know, if you're at risk of losing everything you've worked for, yeah, you can bet I'm going to be scared. I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be frustrated. I'm going to be you know, you're going to hear my voice, right? I'm going to be upset. Um, and I think it's okay for people to be upset because that is a real experience. They've lost everything they worked for with nothing like potentially. Um, and it feels very much like it's out of control. The whole situation feels out of control. Um, so I think that the, those who are in that place, Claudia, like they have every right to, to, to feel those things. And when you, when you combine that with a, with a, with a, with a system that we live in where there are no safety nets available, once things fall apart, I mean, we all know how, I mean, I, I know that I've lived my life knowing how lucky I am to have access to health insurance, how lucky I am to know that like I have a roof over my head and how most of us are one paycheck away from not having those things. Most of us are one paycheck away from, you know, not having health insurance, from not having a roof over our head, from not having food in our refrigerator. Um, and so when the safety nets are so shallow, like it creates this, this, this fear and anxiety that I think maybe becomes a different, makes it hard to say, okay, what, but what really are we, what really are our options here? I have, uh, I mean, we've, we talked kind of been bouncing around this or whatever, the four door topic to me is so interesting as somebody that it just enjoys city planning in general and how cities grow. Um, Cause part of it, it seems like such a win-win. It's a huge area, big enough that you can develop a, a, a significant chunk of it and still have a ton of open space to just add to, like we were talking about earlier, the beautiful amounts of open space that we have already. And I mean, I take advantage of Fort Ord uh, so much. Everybody should. You can just park there and it and the trails are amazing. Um, so it looks like, wow, this area and and California as a whole needs housing. This county has this huge chunk of land that you can fill up with housing. And it happens to be also in a very beautiful area. Um, but then you, when you really look about at it, there's the water is such a huge issue on the peninsula and I'm not going to claim to be some kind of expert on, on the water situation over there. But I know from living here and just reading the news that that's, that's the, the big fight. So it's like, how, how can Ford Ord work both for the County, for, for the citizens and for the environment and 
is density this kind of magic wand? Have you can we just put six story you know buildings all over Fort Ord and be like, ha, ah, that's all it took. And, and, and yeah, I guess is is how how I guess that I mean it's a really huge question, but how can can Fort Ord be developed smartly? I guess is really the yeah no the Fort Ord is way. like such a valuable gem that we have here, right? Like I grew up, my dad was born at Fort Ord. I think I mentioned and um, the the amount of land that we just stumbled into, you know, as a community. Um, pretty incredible. So, so to get to sort of some of the big, get big points of your question, um, we have five cities on the peninsula. When Fort Ord was decommissioned, what twenty years ago, roughly, yeah. uh, that land was, you know, there was the land grab that occurred, and everyone grabbed their portion of land. Most of that land of the blighted areas has been uh, designated to to certain incorporated cities. So when we think about the county's role in the redevelopment of Fort Ord, um, it was through FORA. And FORA was a grand experiment in getting everyone to work together that I um, I think the weekly had some great uh, <laughs> comments on how successful or not successful that was. But the the ultimately, it's Marina has land that it has available to redevelop. Seaside has land available to it to redevelop. Monterey has a small chunk of land that was previously undeveloped that's available for them to develop. Uh, Delray Oaks has some property from Fort Ord. So each one of these cities has their own responsibility to redevelop the the property on Fort Ord. Um, my husband's an architect, right? So we talk about uh, you know development and different kinds of things. And when I worked on the project for Chartwell School, we looked at many different options. It is way cheaper and easier to take fresh previously undeveloped land and develop that land. It is much more complicated and it is much more expensive to take a piece of blighted land that maybe is contaminated with asbestos or lead paint or who knows what, and there's pipes underneath it. And oh goodness, there's a, you know, an old fuel tank that you discovered that now has to be remediated. It is much more complicated for a developer to come in and redevelop blighted land. So the, the concern with Fort Ord and the opportunity with Fort Ord is to say, how can we redevelop the blight and utilize the limited water that we have to get rid of that blight? And then once we've done that, let's go do the easy stuff of developing out on previously undeveloped land. And so that's where the, the issue with Monterey Downs comes into play. Those who have been around for a while remember there was an opportunity potentially to um, pursue a development that would have been in partnership between the county and the, on some county land and some city of seaside land, it would have been developing out onto previously undeveloped land, leaving behind the blight within the city of seaside. Um, it's actually a point of difference between my opponent and I have always been opposed to Monterey Downs as a project. Um, my opponent was excited about Monterey Downs. It's just fundamentally one of the things that we don't talk about often, but there are differences between us. The, um, the so so that's sort of one issue right the developed versus undeveloped land the other issue that i want to talk about that i want to mention when we talk about housing and the monterey bay economic partnership did a great housing white paper on the issue of yes we have a desperate need for additional housing in monterey county what kind of housing do we need 
There are different kinds of housing. So when we talk about market rate housing, well, we just built a ton of that out at East Garrison and at the Dunes and at um, uh, in Marina, different developments. And that housing is beautiful, beautiful homes. It's not the housing that my family could ever afford. It's not the housing that my mom could ever afford. It's not the housing, I mean, maybe my child someday would be lucky enough, but it's not the housing that is serving the needs of a community who's living and working here in Monterey County right now. There's also housing that is low-income housing. There's also housing that's affordable by design. There's also workforce housing. So there's different levels of housing. Um, and the kinds of housing that we're building a lot of is the market rate housing, which is great, right? It's wonderful to have new neighbors who yeah. afford who come in. But in a community like Monterey County, where it is so desirable, we could build market rate housing forever and have an audience. It's not a situation where the typical supply and demand um, principles are going to factor in. What we need in Monterey County is housing that our workforce can live in. It's housing that our hospitality workers can afford to raise their family in. It's housing that our teachers and our firefighters um, can afford to um, to purchase and live in or to rent without being worried about their rent going up every month, or every year. It's housing that our um, it's housing that our that our that our agricultural workers um, and uh, can can afford to live in safely and um, comfortably with their family. That's the kind of housing that we need, and that's where some of the incentives around who get who benefits when you build market rate housing. You get the property tax base. Who benefits when you build um, housing that is affordable by design or that is subsidized low income? No, no, the city doesn't benefit when you build that kind of housing. So I think some of our incentives around what kind of housing we're building and where are we building that housing are slightly um, off off balance. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was going to head into. And I don't want to, again, put this in Salinas versus Monterey Peninsula again. But I'm, I'm curious, is the peninsula, are the residents or the governments willing to build more of that kind of workforce housing? It feels like Salinas, again, just a, a mile so or much. so away from here, we're putting up 1,200 units of farm worker housing. Uh, in the Baranda area, there's more going on. In Spreckles, some more went there. And like I said, that those are those are great projects, and, and we need good housing for, for our workforce. Um, but is the peninsula, again, with all that land, are they willing to be like, hey, like, a lot of this workforce works in your hotels, in your restaurants. Yeah. But you you kind of keep us on in the valley, keep us away. Um, are they willing to to have these people be their neighbors? Oh my goodness, I love this conversation. Okay, so I could talk about this all day. So um, a couple points. Yeah, ten minutes. Uh, okay, ten minutes. Okay. <laughs> no, um, no. So <laughs> so ahead. to your point, there's uh, and I'm going to take a step back and then I'll step into the question. So. So change happens when you have elected leadership who's willing to make um, decisions that that stand firm in the values that represent the community. Politicians need community to tell them that this is what they want and this is the right thing to do. So when I've seen really phenomenal things happen in Monterey County, things like Esperanza Care, which is $2 million of funding that the county provides to provide 3,500 undocumented low-income workers in our county with health access to primary health care and specialty care. It's because you have three votes on a board of supervisors and you have a community that stands up and says, 
this is what we need. This is what we want. This is what we're going to provide you cover to take this vote to move forward with. So you need both. You need champions in elected office and you need an organized voice of community who demands change, demands housing, demands health care. When you have those things come together, good, amazing things can take place and can happen. So on the peninsula, everything you just described is a huge issue. The issues of saying we care about equity, but being unwilling to take the the, the steps to engage in those equitable acts, is an, it, it's a real issue. Um, I'm going to say in District 4, which is Seaside, Marina, and South Salinas, I'm going to say that my constituents and my residents that they, when they say they care about equity, they mean it and they're willing to take those steps. They're willing to welcome um, literally all of the homeless services that are being provided in the county are being provided in District 4. District 4 residents care about one another. They care about their community and they're willing to, to, to take actions that embody that caring. Um, the, the, challenge, the challenge is, is that when you have a community like Marina and Seaside and Salinas, for instance, next door to a community that has tons of money, and you say, we're gonna ask you to put in even more affordable housing with no revenue associated with it, but we're gonna take all of your workers and put them into the community that generates all of the revenue. And we're not gonna share any of that revenue with the communities who are providing the workforce to generate that revenue. Like the inequities become, they grow over time. And so that what you're saying is that we need to, we need to overcome that. And the way to overcome that is to elect candidates so this is where it matters. Like I'm in Salinas, I live in Marina, but you can sure as heck bet that I'm paying attention to the politics of Carmel. I'm paying attention to who's elected in Monterey. I'm paying attention and supporting the candidates who support housing in Pacific Grove. Um, they can't do it on their own. They need our voices to remind them and to encourage them and to support them to do the right thing. So on the peninsula, we created a coalition of local electeds. We have at least one representative from every one of the city councils and school districts. We meet on Sunday mornings um, or afternoons once a month to talk about what opportunities there are to pursue additional low-income and affordable housing in those jurisdictions. And then we back each other up and we say, okay, PG has an opportunity to put three, and it's so simple, right? Three units. There was massive opposition within the city, but the rest of us on the coalition were able to say, we're going to call everyone we know in PG. We're going to show up to the meeting. We're going to rally support so that you can get the votes that you need to get those three units. Three units, right? Yeah. Holy creatures. Um, same thing in Monterey. We're now supporting conversations in Monterey about where do you have city-owned land? Where can you change zoning to allow for more affordable housing to be put in? And even though I don't live in Monterey, even though Monterey is not in my district, I have to support them to, to do the thing that's going to benefit everyone. Um, on the school district board of education, where I do have control and authority, I said we need to focus on um, employee-sponsored housing. There were some great models of school districts providing employee-sponsored housing. When you can provide employee-sponsored housing for our teachers and our janitors and our you know tech supports and our special ed aides, you take the pressure off of the rest of the low-income housing market so that it it frees up units for everyone else. So we said, okay, what are the who can who can help us assess the property that we own? United Way can. Okay, United Way came in, did an assessment of all the school district owned property, said here's five sites that you have water for, that you have excess land that you can develop, um, and that we have a partnership with the city that we can work with. 
we said, okay, let's go and put out an RFQ for some developers to come in and look at this. We brought in Asonio and Midpin Housing. They drafted up proposals. We went out to the community and said, would you fund a bond to help us build these homes for our teachers and our janitors and our special ed aides? The community, 80% said, yes, we would fund that. So then it comes down to the board having to vote to place that on the agenda, on the, the ballot for November. You need a supermajority to put a bond on the ballot. We only had four votes, so short one vote. So even though you know, in Salinas, they're not maybe caring about what the school board is doing, that decision that was made to not even place the bond on the, the ballot effectively prevented up to 300 affordable units from being built in Seaside where we have land and water and um, and the, the will to build the housing. So the I guess my point is that these decisions are all interconnected. Yeah. And as one person, I can do my part, but really truly, if everybody um, could sign on to the MBEP Housing Action Center and then get alerts about housing projects uh, in their larger region, so that when you get that alert, you send that letter of support and you call your friends who live in that jurisdiction and you say, hey, I need you to speak out in support of this housing project. It's building that public will to force the political change that's so desperately needed. You know, and you mentioned um, that, you know, talking about this project, it's a good refresher. I think that um, there's been some efforts to provide teacher housing, uh, workforce housing, not just here, but all over in different areas of California. And some way, some one way or another, we're going to have to tackle this housing crisis because it's really, really deep and and it cuts uh, everywhere and and it's just hard, right? And but before you mentioned that, you mentioned something that that caught my attention, and you said that was a difference between me and my opponent, and we haven't really been asking candidates that, but I think it could be a good thing to ask. Uh, you know, what are other areas you see a big difference between you and your opponent and uh, why would you think would be a better candidate than than your opponent yeah and I you mean, have 10 seconds or less <laughs> i'm going to say that i'm really incredibly proud of the positive race that i've run and i have great faith in the voters to do their research um and go beyond listening to what politicians say and actually looking at who politicians are accountable to based on who their donors are I think that voters are smart enough to read the the journalistic um, research that's been done. Um, listen I think, to podcasts. <laughs> listen to podcasts. <laughs> um, there are there are significant differences between my opponent and I in terms of our voting history, in terms of who um, is supporting our candidacy, in terms of our endorsements, in terms of our donors. Um, there are tremendous differences, and I look forward to continuing a positive race. Um, and I do have I have faith in voters that they're going to pay attention to what those differences are. Um, I make myself available for my cell phone number, my email. I'm happy to provide you know more details of specific things. But you know Monterey Downs was one example. Um, South Salinas uh, uh, Prime Agland annexation was another example. Um, there are some differences in terms of our commitment on um, homeless services. Uh, you know, like I said, it's easy to say it's easy to say all of the say, the right things, but it's much harder to actually do the right thing when it's sitting in front of you. And my commitment is to do the right thing when the time comes to vote or to take action. And I think I've got a pretty solid track record mm -hmm. of that. If Oz doesn't jump in, I want to jump in with the issue of the uh, prime Eggland because um, I I mean, there's 
this huge interest when it comes to annexing um, ag land to develop housing. You know, there's a lot of people who don't want that done because this is ag land is prime. It feeds our families, etc. But then there's a lot of people who need more housing, and then that gets pitted against the other. Um, so I often wonder why is that such a bad thing to 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 annex land so so families don't have to live crowded in Salinas. And, and that's how COVID has been spreading, to be honest, is that one person gets sick and then the entire household where 20 people live, next thing you know, they're all sick. Right. And I think that that goes back to my point about Fort Ord, right? So if what we're talking about is housing that's affordable to our community, that's not that, that's one thing. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about housing that is not affordable to our community that's living and working here. We're talking about... Um, we're talking about development that contributes to climate change. We're talking about development that contributes to urban sprawl. Um, it, it, that's that that at the same time is is eliminating our ability to um, c- c- uh, support this economic base that we spent the first half of this podcast talking about. Um, we're talking about development that eliminates jobs in our community that people living in houses need to have. So there's a balance. There's absolutely a balance. And the housing that we need to focus on is housing that provides stable, safe homes for our seniors who are on fixed incomes, that provides safe, um, secure housing for families who have their kids going to our schools, for employees who are working two jobs in many cases, trying to afford their rent. The housing that we need to be investing in and building to equalize where the need in our community is um, and for anyone who's interested in listening, the, the like I said, the MBEP white paper goes into great detail and provides very specific policy actions that can be taken. Um, but I think that we have to be really careful when we just say housing for the sake of housing and any kind of housing will do. It, it solves one problem, but if we're not solving for the problem that we actually have and that we need to be solving for, we're simply creating a whole set of different challenges um, and problems in our community. So um, again, I, I believe that people are generally able to differentiate between some of those. Um, you know, it's easy to say, well, housing is housing, right? Supply and demand. But it's more nuanced than that. And um, and and really, the, the housing that I'm going to fight for is housing in the right locations that are going to um, reduce travel length, that are going to reduce the job housing disparity that we have um, in the county as a whole on the peninsula. Um, we're going to be looking at how do we create transportation systems that get people connected from where they live to where they work in ways that are efficient and effective and reduce our reliance on imported fossil fuel that reduce the contribution that the county makes to climate change. Um, you know, all of these things are interconnected and interrelated. And we have to be really thoughtful and not just look at a slogan or a tagline, but understand how and why the factors that contribute to a problem, we can actually get to the actual sources of, of solutions. Gotcha. Okay. And I just want to quickly uh, clarify, just because you've said MBEP a couple of times, and that's the, the Monterey Bay Economic Partnership for anyone that, that's not familiar. You could go to their website, mbep.biz. And I've been there a, a couple of times. They have some really neat resources and really good numbers um, it's one of those things that you're like, wait, people are doing this research in this area. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and, and it's pretty cool. And it, it's one of those things that it's 
it's available. You know, you just sign up for the MBEB Housing Action Center, get alerts about how you can personally be a voice in support of the housing solutions that we know are going to make things better for people who are living and working here in Monterey County. That's yeah. a good pitch. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity to pitch that. <laughs> MBEP's like, yes! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and I will say, you know, the MBEP housing folks are providing support to this coalition that I've mentioned um, of electeds on the peninsula that are really looking at, like, how do we get beyond the talking points and the arguments, and how do we really find solutions on a very practical, action-oriented way to build the political support that we need, to build the public support that we need to get housing, the kinds of right kinds of housing in the right kinds of places, yeah. And it's a lo- it's a long-term strategy for change. Right. We I think we have time for two more questions and I want to ask one of those Oz, if you let me. Yeah, go. <laughs> so, have you um I don't know if you heard that Voices of Monterey Bay is put together a proposal called React to try to um so there's an organization in Eugene, Oregon called Cahoots, Cahoots. Oh that uh, uses funding to um, give services to people, well, to to create units to give services to people who are in distress on the streets. And this unit takes care of those calls that are not emergency rather than having the police department take care of that. Um, Because sometimes we hear that police officers are acting as social workers, as uh, many things that they're basically don't have training for. And so there's the organization called Cahoots and Voice of Monterey Bay put together a proposal called REACT that is based on Cahoots. And you haven't heard of it, but that's what you're telling me. But I'm wondering if that's something that you're curious about and you would be willing to support because um, we have we have heard from some people who seem interested and we want to push it forward somehow. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, the issue of, um, of police reform and the issue of how we invest limited resources and the issue of really what is the outcome that we're trying to achieve when we say public health and public safety? And then what's the best way for us to get there? How do we ensure that everybody feels safe and is safe in our community when they're visiting here, when they're traveling here, when they're living here, when they're working here? Um, like that's a fundamental responsibility of county government, of all government, is public safety. And um, like I want to be really clear, like I support our public safety partners. Um, I worked really hard in Marina to um, run a citizens initiative to earn more revenue. We now successfully have $2.1 million more annually that go towards, um, in many cases, our public safety partners in Marina so that we can have strong, healthy, safe communities. Um, and how that, how we achieve those strong, healthy, safe communities can look like a lot of different things. Um, I'm, I'm, I've heard a little bit about Cahoots and I've done some reading and been on their website and checked out some of their uh, materials. Um, it, 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 it makes a ton of sense. And, at, and I'll give the example of at Monterey Peninsula Unified School District, where we, um, we have 10,000 students in grades K through through 12. Um, a couple of years ago, we decided to take the funding that we had been using for our school resource officers. And we um, 
moved that funding into mental health supports. So instead of having um, a total of three mental health, I'm sorry, three school resource offices who worked on uh, you know different schedules from where our school day was, we now have um, a mental health specialist on every single campus every single day. So the 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 cost benefit of being able to say for what we were spending in one area to achieve certain outcomes, the outcomes that we were really looking to achieve were mentorship, were support, were, were really focused on mental health outcomes. And through having um, uh, lower cost staff who are on site with students, uh, with that training, um, we're able to achieve those outcomes in a, in a more effective way while remaining in partnership with our city uh, police departments um, who, and they remain available when we need them, we're going to call them. And um, we're grateful that they're, that they're there to work with us and, and show up and keep our students and our families and our community safe. But in the meantime, we're also going to do the preventative work to meet students and families where they're at and provide them with the resources that they need, which are so often mental health specific. I haven't. I had heard that the funding has was taken from the the resource officers, but I didn't know about that, the mental health part. So that's pretty. Yeah. That's interesting. I think we may be one of the few districts in the state who has mental health supports on every single campus, oh, that's and have made that commitment, um, oh. and are seeing it yeah. pay off. I mean, it's not only for the students, but it's for the faculty. It's it's making sure that everybody on the school site has the social emotional supports that they need. You know, teaching is hard. Teaching, administrating, like being an administrator of a middle school, holy moly. So to have someone who really is there to provide that support to everyone on campus, it's a yeah. big deal and it makes a difference. Public services, uh, you know, being an elected official, public service is really, is really quite something. So, yeah. All right. Well, I'm I'm here looking at a map of your potential district. Yeah. And and my question goes to again back to the relationship between the peninsula and Salinas because I think that is what's so neat or unique about this district is that it does have a little chunk of Salinas there and the Monterey Peninsula. And going back to that question of uh, you know, a lot of the workforce working here in Salinas, I mean, living here in Salinas and working on the peninsula. Plus, again, we'd like to go enjoy the peninsula anyway. And we like to come shopping in Salinas. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it goes back and yeah, it goes back and forth. And a big and something that constantly comes up with that is the traffic. You know, your district basically encompasses every way to get from Salinas to the peninsula. <laughs> has Highway 68. Blanco, well, we don't have Highway 68, but we've well, got it's. We're right at the edge, edge yeah. of, of 68, yeah. And 68 I, is District 5. In, in with, northbound yeah. lane, we can't say anything about that. That is not us. Southbound we, lane, we got that. Oz, we do get a little part of the Laguna Seca um, track. It's bizarre the way the line it goes. It cuts the Laguna Seca track in half. So half of that track, maybe a quarter of that track, is District 4. So I get to claim Laguna Seca like, track. We're putting a bus lane there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that half, we're putting a bus lane uh, but basically, that well, that is what my question is. What do you think is the most important transportation project between those two areas that is currently being worked on or in or talked about? Um, so, uh, so, so I'm going to, I'm going to step back. So we, so district four essentially has three communities of interest. Um, Marina is fairly unique in its needs and issues. Seaside is unique in its needs and issues. And then South Salinas. And they're almost population wise, you're pretty close to split, you know, a third, a third, a third. Um, and 
you know, the water issues in each community are different. The, the governance issues in each community are different. Um, the housing issues actually in each community are slightly different. Um, and, uh, Anyway, yeah, it's a great district, and I've loved the chance to be working and serving each one of those communities for the past ten years. It's just been incredible, um, and it's home, right? So, like, I, I get to get to you know hang out in all my old stomping grounds from growing up. But the uh, the issue of transportation. So, one of the things that the supervisor does is they sit on the transportation agency for Monterey County. It's a independent board that coordinates all of the transportation sort of big picture projects uh, in the region. They work in partnership with all of our cities. Because again, remember in Marina within the city proper, this, the county doesn't get to make decisions about transportation on Reservation Road once you're in Marina. That's a city city government planning yeah. issue. In Salinas on West Alisal, you know, which is a main thoroughfare, like that's a city of Salinas uh, traffic issue. And TMZ gets to bring everyone together and say, okay, really, what are our big picture challenges? What are our big picture goals? How are we going to work to ensure that we're competitive for funding? Because a lot of traffic um, and transportation projects are based on state and federal grants again. So we want to be competitive, showing that we're working in coordination, showing that we've got a big master plan. Um, and so I think one of the big projects that I'm kind of excited about in District 4 for transportation, the congestion on Highway one has gotten just exponentially worse between uh, Marina and uh, Carmel, Mon Monterey Carmel, because you have a workforce that's coming from the North Peninsula into the South Peninsula to work, and then they drive home at the end of the day. So we went from having, you know, I used to drive, I drive that regularly, um, and the traffic has just backed up farther and farther and farther. And it's very, it's during, still during very specific hours of the day. But Monterey Salinas Transit um, is our bus service. And uh, as we tell people, you know, we want to reduce traffic um, on the freeway, get on the bus, take public transportation. Well, they're stuck in that traffic too, yeah. right? And so we've had this idea floating around for some time about getting a light rail service between Salinas, Marina, and Monterey to connect all three of those communities via light rail, which would just run along the old um, rail line uh, from Marina to, Mo uh, to Monterey. It's really hard to get funding for light rail, just like light rail. But the way to start is to start a bus rapid transit along the, the rail line. So MST in partnership with uh, TMZ and in partnership with the cities and uh, you know a whole, whole host of partners is looking at how to create um, a bus rapid transit line that, that runs along um, kind of the hike and bike trail, uh, the, 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 the rail lines that are right there. If that project can generate interest and get ridership, it puts us in a much more competitive position for light rail funding. Um, and the way that they're going to build it is to preserve all of the track. Um, it would require some major in, in intersection improvements, um, like at the Sand City Seaside exit. Um, and at the there's a couple there's a couple points where we've got to do some work. Yeah. But you start planning for it. Um, we're not talking a solution for tomorrow, but we're talking a solution for the long term. And then the other thing I'll mention too with traffic, um, you know, we've had this this incredible sort of chance with COVID to say, okay, like. Who can work from home? When can they work from home? Who needs to be on site and what hours do they need to be on site? I'm going to tell you that there isn't congestion on Highway 1 now the way that there was before because schools are closed. And that's everywhere. Yeah. Right? So yeah. there's still there's still people driving, but we have an we have a once in a lifetime opportunity to kind of rethink 
What do we mean when we want to invest in transportation? What are the outcomes we're solving for? Really, if we want to make people's lives better, maybe maybe part of that thinking is that they don't spend two hours in a car every day, right? Maybe that means that instead of, you know, or in addition to transportation infrastructure, we're also talking about broadband infrastructure so that people have the option and the ability to, you know, work two days from home. You don't have that option and ability if I don't have enough internet coming into my house. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. So, so the, yeah. I really think we really need to to use this this opportunity to think about things a little bit differently. Absolutely. Absolutely. We've been sitting here for an hour and uh, we probably need to say goodbye because I'm sure we sure you have other campaigning to do out in the world. Um, the other we- people are going to be like, I only got 47 minutes. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Do we want another question? Are you ready to go? Um, or do we want to... I, have every, I got everything answered that I had on here on my list. Excellent. Well, uh, anything any anything else you would like to... Yeah, I just want to remind people that ballots drop in about a week. Um, it is my, it's been the honor of my lifetime to serve um, in the supervisor's office the past 10 years. Um, and it would be just an incredible opportunity to continue this work um, as your representative on the Board of Supervisors. The, the needs are significant in our community. Um, my commitment is to, you know, work to make sure that the voices of our residents, um, of our workforce, of our families are being included in the conversation. Um, that's who I, I, I've been accountable to my entire life. That's who I will continue to be accountable to. Um, I've also been really clear with people, you know, there's nobody in this world that I agree with 100% on every issue. Um, and I'm going to do my best to be honest and transparent about where I stand on things, be open-minded, um, be willing to hear, you know, all sides of, of an issue before I make decisions, but then be really clear and truthful about where I stand on things. Um, so uh, it would be my my honor to, to earn the vote of District 4 residents and to earn the support and advocacy for some of the things we need to have happen from residents throughout the county. So my, website's, uh, uh, my website is votewendy2020.com. We've got more information posted online. If you have questions, if you want to chat with me more, please do reach out. I love, I love the chance to talk directly to our voters. Um, and, our, and, and even those who aren't registered to vote, you know, if you're curious and want to learn more, reach out. I'm here to represent everyone. Well, good luck, Wendy, and thanks for coming onto the show. Thank you so much. It was fun. Let's do it again.